Welcome to Inside the Writer's Cafe, brought to you on webtalkradio.net. I'm Cheryl Nason, and each week it's my pleasure to bring you conversations with top authors of fiction and nonfiction. We talk with these authors about their latest work. Sometimes there's a surprise, but there's always an insight. There's been a murder is a common theme for our featured novels this week. Former attorney and New York Times best-selling author Philip Margolin takes readers on a modern-day thrill ride in his latest novel, Supreme Justice, published by HarperCollins. Edgar Award winner Stephanie Pintoff takes readers on a journey back to in time to 1906 with a gothic thriller set in New York's theater district. A Curtain Falls is the latest in the Detective Simon Zeal mystery series, published by Minotaur Books. New York Times best-selling author Philip Margolin grew up in New York City and Levittown, New York. He graduated from the American University in Washington, D.C. with a bachelor's degree in government, and he went on to graduate from NYU School of Law. He practiced law from 1972 to 1996, and he specialized in criminal defense at the trial and appellate levels. Since 1996, he's been writing full-time. In addition to his novels, he's also published short stories and nonfiction articles in magazines and law journals. His work in the nonprofit sector includes being president and chairman of the board of Chess for Success, a nonprofit charity that uses chess to teach study skills to elementary and middle school children in Title I schools. Philip is with us today, and we're going to talk about his latest wonderful, suspenseful novel, Supreme Justice. Welcome to Inside the Writer's Cafe, Philip Margolin. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's my pleasure, and this is such a wonderful, complicated, interesting, sort of ripped-from-the-headlines book. Do you like Phil or Philip? Uh, Phil. Phil, good. I, I like to be informal with my authors. Phil, tell me and our listeners a little bit about this book, and then you and I are going to talk about some specifics. Well, the the book starts off um, in an out-of-the-way port uh, on the Columbia River, and a night watchman at a at a warehouse hears uh, shots on this sh- a small freighter that's anchored there and calls the police. These two police officers show up, and uh, they're local local officers from a small town, and they find f- dead bodies and a hold full of hashish. And before they can even start to investigate, Homeland Security shows up, and they're told to <clears throat> turn over all their evidence, forget they ever saw anything, and just go. Uh, the next day, just out of curiosity, they come back and the ship's gone, the night watchman's gone, the hashish is gone, and so are the bodies. Uh, eventually, we learn that the one person did survive this massacre, and he's the captain of the ship, John Finley. But then Finley is murdered, and uh, his his uh, policewoman uh, lover, Sarah Woodruff, is charged with the crime and eventually ends up on death row. Uh, the book really gets into gear years later when the case gets up to the United States Supreme Court. And uh, uh, 
Woodruff is on her last possible appeal before being executed. And as soon as the case gets to the court, very odd things start happening. A justice resigns. Uh, there's a murder attempt on another justice. And uh, Brad Miller, who was the hero of executive privilege, the, the book that came before this one, um, begins to suspect that there's somebody who's trying to keep this case from uh, being heard by the justices. And so that's sort of an overview of the the case. And he and Dana Cutler, who also was an executive privilege, he's a private investigator, um, spend the book trying to figure out why these efforts are being made to keep the case from being heard. You know, you have a lot. The book is an action-packed book, and the plot is complex, but it's so much fun to read because it's like some of these things literally, as I said in the introduction, have been ripped out of the headlines. When you're talking about the Supreme Court justices and the attack on Justice Moss, that really made my blood run cold because we don't think that could happen. Not to a Supreme Court justice. Well, they do have a lot of uh, heavy-duty security. One of the the things that was the most fun for me in writing this book is I I was an appellate attorney, uh, did a lot of death penalty cases, so I was familiar with how the trials in a death penalty case worked. But I also, uh, when I was a young kid, had a chance to argue at the U.S. Supreme Court. And uh, I was way too nervous (laughs) to ask uh, for a tour, but to do the research for this book, I was able to get a tour of the court, uh, and and I learned a little bit about the security. And one of the most interesting things for me was that when people come to work at the court, the clerks and and Brad Miller, the hero, is a is working as a clerk at the court. It's a one year job, very intense job. Um, the guards don't ask for your identification because they memorize the face of every one of the clerks. And that was just a really interesting to me about the type of security they have. I actually, uh, there's a shootout in the garage, and I got to go down to the garage to see what type of security they have down there and how that's set up. So uh, that was a lot of fun. Anything surprising? Well, Besides the guards. Yeah, I mean, the, the uh, one of the things is how many uh, the, the, what how the the court the the clerkships are uh, you work 12 to 16 hour days so normally like if you wanted to go get your hair done you'd you'd leave your job and where you're, wherever you work and you go out and get your hair done they have barbershop in the court they have a gym in the court um the single most interesting thing that i learned which i i love to spring on people it's my trivia question uh and i'll ask you what is the highest court in the land well, and of course, I would say the Supreme Court. I know that there's a secret court that's out there as well. So, it, you know. <laughs> nope. The answer is that there is a regulation-sized basketball court on oh, the I roof of the U.S. Tell Supreme Court, and the court, um, the court. that's what they they call it—the highest court in the land, because the the basketball court is actually over the courtroom where the uh, where the justices decide the cases. So I would say that was the most fun thing that I learned when I was doing my research. I remember that from the book now because you have Brad playing basketball up there and he's mm-hmm. challenged by another female law clerk who could probably kick his behind in basketball. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. 
This is so much fun to read. Sarah Woodruff is a very interesting character and not someone that I would have suspected as a murderer, and yet the evidence against her is just overwhelming. She's a police officer herself. Yeah, and she was a really good character for me to develop because uh, this whole book, in a way, uh, part of the book turns on this uh, case that she's involved in. And Sarah's a real tough guy. She's a police officer. She she gets involved with this Finley character, uh, who's the captain of the ship, and in, in a sort of a strange way, when she's on vacation, climbing a mountain in per, in Peru, and um, uh, all of a sudden gets plunged into this international intrigue without any, you know, without wanting to be involved in it. So uh, uh, just trying to portray her and and give the 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 readers a sense of what it would be like to be on death row uh, facing execution and having just the Supreme Court between you and your own death was uh, was a really interest, interesting challenge for me. I really liked her attorney as well. She is one of those tough women that sort of, she rises to the fore in this, and she doesn't take any prisoners, does she? No, and, and actually, uh, there's an interesting story behind that. Um, Mary Garrett is is a character from a, another book I wrote years and years ago called The Undertaker's Widow, and uh, she's a very odd person. Um, she's uh, I don't want to give away too much about her, but physically she's quite unusual. And uh, I really liked the character in uh, when I created for this other book, and I, I thought, gosh, I, I'd love to bring her back at some time. And then I just sort of forgot about her. And when I, I started writing Supreme Justice, I thought I have to have uh, Sarah have a defense attorney, and I was going to invent one. And then all of a sudden I thought, well, wait a minute. Uh, why don't I bring back Mary Garrett? And I think she fits perfectly with Sarah because they're both very, very strong women. Oh, yeah. And, and, um, but, but quite different. One, uh, Sarah is, is physically quite imposing. She's a mountain climber and a daredevil and, and – uh, and and then uh, her attorney Mary is a is is uh, physically very odd, but but mentally they're both quite uh, probably both equally tough. And I like the interaction with Mary Garrett and Dana Cutler because again you have another very strong female character, and and when you put them together, it it makes for interesting stuff. And the scenes between Dana. And Sarah Woodruff are interesting scenes. Yeah, that they that was uh, something I really want to work on because uh, Dana, Dana Cutler is probably one of the best characters I've ever created, and she she is uh, sort of the star of the show in Executive Privilege, uh, which asks the question: Is the President of the United States a serial killer? And that was when I wrote that. I intended that to be a standalone, but the book was really successful, and people. Um, really like Dana. I mean, that's that's when they talk about executive privilege, it's usually, boy, I, I like Dana Cutler. And she is a uh, uh, former policewoman, so she can really relate to Sarah. Um, but she went through some horrific um, uh, problems that led her to be in a mental institution for a year. And uh, when she got out, she became a, a private detective. And she's asked to uh, secretly investigate this case and the possible ties between the Woodruff case uh, in Oregon, in the small town in Oregon, and 
one of the justices on the Supreme Court. Uh, and so she's got to go to Oregon and look into the, into the background of this case to find out what really went down. And uh, her scenes with, with Woodruff, uh, someone she can really relate to because they've both gone through very hellish situations and, and both, uh, you know, had similar sort of backgrounds in the police force. Uh, so so they were a real challenge to write, and, and, but they're, I think, some of the better scenes in the book. I agree. When you write your female characters, because they, they're tough and they sound true, do you bounce them off of a, a woman? There's a funny – well, there's a real story behind this, because I, I get asked this all the time. Um, about half of the books that I've written have very strong women characters. And when I finished writing my first novel back in 1978, it, it had a male a main character, and I was asked by the editor at uh, at the publishing house if I would be interested in in writing a series with a woman prosecutor. And I panicked. I said, I, "Oh, I couldn't do that. How could I? I couldn't write a woman character. I'm a man. How could I write a woman character?" I was in my mid. I was, you know, I was young then. I was in, in my mid 30s and stuff. And I was, you know, so so. Then the next two, the next book I wrote was had also had a male character, and I stopped for about twelve years. I, I, wrote, I had two books in my in my thirties, and then my law practice got so interesting I stopped writing. Well, when I started writing my third book, which involved a serial killer, I had a had a, a male main character again, and there's a scene where this uh, serial killer who's who who dehumanizes women before he kills them. He's just a hideous human being. Uh, is being interviewed by the lawyer for the first time. And it dawned on me that I, I've represented serial killers. And, you know, you're always a little nervous. I've had, I did 30 homicide cases. Wow. And so you're always a little nervous if you're sitting with someone who's killed somebody. Yeah. But if if they kill women and you're not their type, you know, the tension level's much lower. So I'm thinking to myself as I'm writing the, the scene if I had a female attorney locked in a room with a guy who is, you know, really is horrible to women, the tension level would be through the roof. And I realized oh, I had that. So I thought, well, I've got to, I've got to have a woman. I, you know, there's no way out of this. I could, no way I could wiggle out of it this time. I've got to have a woman as the main character. And so I thought, well, who's the toughest guy? No, and it was my wife, uh, Doreen, who who was a, a lawyer. And I just uh, said, well, you know what I'm going to do is every and and every scene that Betsy Tannenbaum, the character in Gone but Not Forgotten, uh, is in, I'm going to imagine Doreen in that scene, and I'm just going to imagine what she would say and how she would act. And uh, the book was a huge success, and and everybody loved the main character. And by the time I finished writing the book, I realized it wasn't that tough to write a, a good, strong woman main character. Uh, I sort of got over my my fear without therapy, without having to go to the Betty Ford female character clinic. And uh, since then, it's been pretty easy for me to do. But uh, initially, that was really, really a, a, a tough for me to 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 get the guts up to to write a uh, a main character who was a woman but but as i say I'm, this uh, supreme justice is my 15th novel and about i'd say roughly half of them have uh, have a main character who is a woman well and you you've wound i mean this has got a lot of of threads in it you and i were talking before we started to record the interview and i told you that this has a really 
great ending, and I never, ever, I never want to hint even at endings to the, the listeners because I don't want to ruin the book for them. But all of this, everything in the novel, pay attention as they read because everything has something to do with something else. And that was one of the things I really enjoyed, your attention to detail. I like the complexity of the plot, and I like... In my head, I think I watch the plot unfold, and I like watching how the strands get closer and closer and closer together. And things that seemingly have nothing to do with this activity or this action, all of a sudden a light bulb comes on over your head and you go, wait a minute, I see that now. That makes perfect sense. So congratulations on a really complex, great plot. It just pulled me along and tricked me at the end. I loved it. Well, that's... The biggest thing, in most, almost all my books are like that. I, I, I'm more of a fan than I am a writer. Uh, I love to read, and I read a couple of books a week. And the type of book that I like is a book that has several stories going that don't appear to have anything to do with each other and then come together. So that's the type of book I like to write. And um, I usually have more than one story going, and then you know the trick is how do you weave them all together so that by the very end – everything does work together and 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 that for me is the fun and i do very extensive outlines uh my outlines are 25 to 60 pages long wow uh yeah cuz because everything does have to fit together otherwise people are going to write me really nasty letters and uh so i don't want anyone getting mad at me so i really spend a lot of time and the the, the outlines will take me sometimes 3 months to write and I actually walk myself through the the entire book from beginning to end. So, you know, people, I've been asked, do you ever get writer's block? And the answer is no, because by the time I, I, I set, you know, before I write a single word, uh, I've spent months developing the plot, and, and I've got the whole book sort of written out in shorthand. And I won't write a single word until I know the ending of the book. I have to know how things are going to tie together. So... So the ending is really what what starts the book for me. I mean, the the construction of the book. So I I think about it. I figure out the ending. Then I go and do this very 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 detailed outline and make sure that everything in the book is going to tie together and it's going to have a, a you know a good explanation by the time it ends. I always think it's interesting to hear about a very successful author's process because they're always so different. Some people will say that they just let the book unfold as they write it and do no outlining whatsoever. Isn't that interesting? I mean, it's just totally opposite from the way that your process works, and yet both of them work for the individual author. So there's no right way to do this. I think each person maybe has to find their own direction in how to write a book if they decide they want to do that. Well, that's what's so neat about writing, and, and I talk to high school classes and law school classes and about writing elementary schools and middle schools, and one of the things I always start off with is saying that, you know, I'm going to tell you what things that work for me, but one of the neat things about writing is, uh, you know, if, if I was teaching you math and I said 2 plus 2 is 4 and you disagree with me, you'd be 100% wrong, but if, with writing, any process that gets you from page one to the end is a brilliant process. And, you know, I, I, I always tell the kids, you know, I'm going to tell you stuff that works for me. Hopefully 
it'll work for you too. But if if it doesn't, if you feel uncomfortable with it, uh, you know, and and something else helps you get to the end, you use that because that there's nothing wrong with it. So uh, I've I've had people who just cannot work with an outline, and I think it's nuts, quite frankly. But they <laughs> because because if you don't, you know, if you just go with the flow, what happens if you write 400 pages? And then you don't know how to end the book. Exactly. So you've got a 400-page thing, but it's not a book. And then you're either forced to make up a silly ending, which really I've had that happen in a number of books where I'm so excited, I'm reading the book, I'm so excited, and then the ending is really stupid, and then I feel like someone stole money from me. Um, and, you know, that's one of my major complaints with the, with people who don't use outlines. But there are a whole... It's, that's the big debate. Should you use an outline or not use an outline? And I've heard arguments both ways. And like I say, if it works, uh, if you can, if you can't use an outline and you can complete a book without it, that's a brilliant, you know, it's a brilliant way to do it. So, you you do have a slime factor in this book that I just want to mention. I mean, he's the the former head of the CIA, Dennis Masterson. He was my he, I didn't like him at all. He was a slime <laughs> factor in this book, as far as I'm concerned, and he's sort of woven throughout the plot. And I, I wanted to mention him because, I, I, unfortunately, when I read him and read about his character, he's one of the most frightening characters in the book because the realism that you have imbued him with is a little bit scary because he could come we could have politicians who have been in that kind of position. And he's a rainmaker for this major law firm that you've created. Um, I've got it written down here somewhere, Rankin, Lusk, Rankin, Lusk. Carstairs, and White. Of course, I misspelled, <laughs> when I was typing Lusk, I misspelled it and called it Lust. And went back <laughs> and redid it. That's for another type of book. Exactly, exactly. But he's a very frightening character because of the realism that that he smacks of. Well, he's supposed to be a slimy character and I'm glad that uh, I'm ga- glad he made you uncomfortable because that's you know, my job is to try to create characters uh that get some sort of a visceral response and and if I did that I'm really happy. So, uh <clears throat> you know, it's difficult to that for me the most difficult thing is character development. Um, I'm a puzzle guy, and, and when I write the books, the fun for me is, is creating the puzzle. But uh, I realize that you actually have to have characters. In my early, I'm totally self-taught. I, I've, I had one creative writing class and got a C plus in it, and I really didn't understand about character development when I started writing. And my early editors beat the hell out of me and, and, and forced me to develop my characters. So I do it now. I mean, this is my 15th book, and I think I finally got the hang of it. But uh, uh, it's, that's what's hard work for me is trying to make the characters different from each other and recognizable and three-dimensional, really. I mean, when you're when you're doing a character, you've got to end up with someone that somebody says, oh, yeah, I know somebody like that, or I can – I could I I I could uh, understand how this person could act like that. So you've got to give him motivations and histories and stuff. And and uh, Dennis Masterson was a guy that I wanted to be the the evil bad guy. And and uh, I'm glad that he made your skin crawl. Oh, he did. Oh, yes, he did. Our time is really up, Philip. I I could sit here and talk to you for another 
30 minutes. I mean, we've, we've spent 20 minutes together already. The book is captivating. I love your style. I love what you've done with it, and I want to thank you for taking time to talk with us today. If the listeners want to know more about you and your other work, I know there's a website that they can go to. Let's give them the address. It's www.philipmargolin, that's with two L's, P-H-I-L-L-I-P-M-A-R-G-O-L-I-N.com. And uh, it's interactive, so I have a section where you can ask me questions uh, about Supreme Justice or any of the other books. And uh, I have a section on writing if you if you want to ask me questions about how to write. So it's fun for me, and I do check this website every day. And if as soon as someone asks me a question, I I try to answer it right away. And the only time I don't do is if I'm on a book tour or something or on vacation. Well, it was such a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks again for joining us on Inside the Writers Cafe. Thanks for having me on. This was a lot of fun. You're listening to Inside the Writer's Cafe, brought to you on webtalkradio.net. Stephanie Pintoff is an author, but she's also a graduate of Columbia University Law School, and she has a Ph.D. in literature from New York University. She's won an Edgar Award for Best First Novel and St. Martin's Press Mystery Writers of America Best First Crime Novel Award. She's been nominated for an Anthony, an Agatha, and the McCaverty Award for Best Historical Novel. Stephanie's with us today to talk about the latest in the Detective Simon Zeal series, A Curtain Falls. Stephanie, it's always so much fun to talk to you. Welcome to Inside the Writer's Cafe. Uh, Thank you so much for inviting me back. It's wonderful being here. I love your style. I love what you've done with this series. It's mysterious. There's a murders involved, obviously, but you have done such a magnificent job with your research about old New York that I just really enjoyed that particularly about the novel because it really strikes me as murder with manners. Let's give the listeners a little bit of a, an inside idea about what A Curtain Falls is about. Oh, sure. Thank you, Cheryl. Well, in A Curtain Falls, um, it's set in the theater district of early 1900s New York City. And the theater district is really getting its start right now. Um, It's not the Broadway we think of today, which is established. It's something that a man called Charles Froman is working very hard to build up. And he's using a, a system which many listeners may be more familiar with in terms of the Hollywood studio system of the 30s and 40s, where he's literally trying to create almost a monopoly of all the theaters and build actors and actresses into stars out of nothing. And I, when I read about this system, I thought, you know, this is going to be a perfect setting for murder because it's a, it's a setting that will draw both my killer and his victims together in almost a collision course of desire and ambition and jealousy. So when Detective Zeal is drawn into the case, it's because a series of chorus girls are found murdered. They're on stage. They're dressed in the leading ladies' clothes, which, of course, they by rights would not be entitled to wear. And there's not a single mark on their body. 
And at first, everyone thinks it's suicide. But when more and more chorus girls are being found killed this way, they realize something more sinister is going on. So they ask Detective Dale to come take a look at the case. And when he is having trouble making sense of it, he knows who to call as well. Uh, criminologist Alistair Sinclair, who's helped him in earlier cases, and is someone that we would think of as an early criminal profiler. Um, he's able to read crime scene behavior, he's up to date on the latest forensic techniques, and he's working with my detective who's well-versed in you know, kind of old-school detective methods to solve this case. I like Simon Zeal because he's, a de he's an intellectual detective, but he's a detective with a past, and his past haunts him all the time. In your first novel, In the Shadow of Gotham, we met him for the first time. And the fact that his fiancée was killed in this horrible steamboat or ferry accident the General Slocum Ferry Disaster. You did some research around that, and that was a huge disaster for New York, was it not? It was. It was the worst tragedy to strike New York before 9-11. Um, there were over a 1,000 people who died. And, you know, most of them were women and children because it was a weekday excursion boat outing. Most of the men had to stay and, you know, manage their work, whatever it was. And they were trying to send their wives and their kids on a pleasure boat on a, a hot June day. And one fiasco after another um, led the ship to burn on the East River. It was much like what we're familiar with from the Titanic. The lifeboats were stapled to the ceiling. No one could get them off. Uh, the life vests were rotten. And all these people who couldn't swim you know, they either drowned or they stayed on the boat and they burned to death. And it was just a terrible loss of life. And most of the people on board the boat were from Simon Zeal's neighborhood. They included his fiancée. As part of the police force, he was actually part of the efforts to try to rescue people who were on board that day. And he does rescue a number of them, but he, he never finds his fiancée. And he's left with a physical reminder of the incident as well. He's lost part use of his right arm, and that's something that you know constantly gives him trouble when the weather is a little too cloudy or rainy, you know, much like an arthritis sort of thing. But it, it's like 9-11 for Simon Zeal as well, because it's a tragedy that is once intensely personal to him. He lost someone important. But it's also global. Um, everyone in his neighborhood lost someone as well. So it's a tragedy that he shares with so many other New Yorkers. And it just, it, it haunts him. And we're reuniting him in A Curtain Falls with his old partner. And yes. his old partner is Declan Mulvaney, and he's now a captain. And they worked together as detectives and seemingly both had the same bright future ahead of them. But because of the disaster, the ferry boat disaster, Simon Zeal has chosen to sort of move out of the city and get away from the violence. And so he's now in a very small town outside the city. And Delvaney has taken over 
a really crime-ridden neighborhood, the one with the, the worst crime record in the city, and he's the one that is in charge of in the investigations of all of the murders of the chorus girls. And interestingly enough, he doesn't feel comfortable with the, the detectives and the other police officers that work with him, so he goes for his old partner. I thought that was a very interesting touch. Oh, thank you. Yes, you know, when we meet Mulvaney in this book, he has just been assigned precinct captain of the 19th Precinct, which includes the Tenderloin, you know, one of the worst districts. And even though he's commander now of one of the largest precincts, when he's got a really tough case like this, he finds himself wanting the advice of Zeal. He grew up with him. They were partners together. And he's a man that he knows he can really rely on and trust. Um, the men he's commanding now, that they just haven't proved themselves to him yet. He's not sure about them. This case that you have put before us is very interesting. It's it's violent without being violent. And <laughs> a, it really, and there's a psychological twist to this. And I think one of the other things that you do so nicely in this book is demonstrate the class structure that was still in place in the 1900s in New York City and the education level. Because this killer is obviously a very intelligent and articulate killer. He makes references to, um, he writes poetry, and he talks about Pygmalion and Galatea. And Zeal and Mulvaney are going, huh? (laughs) This is not in their realm of experience. And so that's one of the reasons that they reach out to Alistair Sinclair is because they know that he has this different set of intellectual skills and neither one of them trust him very much because of what happened in in the shadow of gotham he did some things that were very self-serving in that novel and we don't trust him quite do we no you know as brilliant as alistair is I think Zeal has him pegged. Alistair is always going to put his own interests and his own career first. And part of the reason why Alistair is actually interested in helping Zeal on this case is he's looking always to bump his reputation, you know, kind of rehabilitate his image, which was tarnished just slightly a bit by the end of In the Shadow of Gotham. And he sees this as his big chance. It's a high-profile case. And if he's instrumental in solving it, well, then good for him. And uh, if it helps you along the way, then so be it. But, um, yes, you know, the the killer I created for this, I've always been interested in a certain class of serial killer, the kind who writes about it. And not all of them who do it have been as educated as um, the killer I used here. But there was an Austrian serial killer who was my loose model for The Killer in a Curtain Falls. And I borrowed from him that education level because I found it so interesting. This um, Austrian killer had gone to jail early in life for killing his first girlfriend. 
while he was in prison, he educated himself, wrote a memoir, and it became the hit of Austria's literary elite. And all of these very famous authors went to the parole board and they started to argue, you know, no one who writes this beautifully can craft this kind of prose could possibly not be rehabilitated. Obviously, his time in prison has changed and we have to let him out. And so they did. And he went on to have this fabulous literary career. And it was so fabulous that for over a decade, it managed to cover up the fact that he was still killing women. Wow. And I thought, how amazing. And, you know, that was one of the things you mentioned, the class issues I'm working with. You know, we definitely have this presumption that someone of a certain level of education, a certain level of class, is not going to commit the more heinous crimes. And it's a presumption that very often is wrong, but we still have it. I have laughingly said before, and perhaps this really is not funny, but a killer like a Ted Bundy, attractive, articulate, um, a sociopath, obviously, I have said before I would have gone out with Ted Bundy because who among us would not be attracted to that physically attractive, very articulate person? Now, on some level, there may be a, a red flag waving in the back of our brain somewhere, but we may or may not listen to that red flag. And I really love what you did with this killer. I mean, he's 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 great. Thank I don't you. want to give anything away about <laughs> it, and, and I want us to segue into the newspaper business. Because sure. the New York Times, at this point in time, the newspapers are really the TVs of that era. I mean, they had so much power, and they were all vying to try to get the most sensational stories. And this killer is a really smart guy. He sends a letter to the New York Times. And so he's involved in the newspaper. And when Zeal and Mulvaney find out that this has happened, they're worried that the Times will sort of blow the lid off of their investigation. So they go to the newspaper and wind up with something they don't want. They have two reporters who are assigned to them to, quote, aid them with their investigation, and I'm doing air quotes right now. Yes. <laughs> this is not something that either one of these two men want. One of these guys is a real beat reporter, and the other has an insight into the theater because he's a critic. But Mulvaney and Zeal don't like this, and neither does Alistair. Why? They want control of their own investigation, and none of them trust the press. Um, you know, they make this deal with the New York Times, okay, you know, please don't write what you've got so far, don't make it a news story, and we promise you the second we've solved the case, you're going to get your exclusive, you'll have it all over all the papers, you'll sell more because nobody else will have it. Um, they know that if the Times starts publishing it, all the other papers, the yellow sensation rags, are going to be right on their heels, and they're not going to be able to get anything done. Um, now, of course, with these two reporters in the mix, they don't necessarily get as much done as they would like either. Um, they're always tailing them. They seem to know more than they really want them to know. 
and uh, it's it's a real added conflict and complication in their investigation that they don't appreciate. I liked that touch. I thought, didn't Jack the Ripper also write notes to the police and to the newspapers to get him yes. sensationalized and more attention? Definitely. And um, nobody's really sure how many of the letters were actually his, but they feel that at least some of them were. And that was, of course, another thing that Zeal and Mulvaney worry about. You know, once this happens, there are going to be other copycats who want to see their letters written up in the newspaper. So they're going to write fake letters, and that's going to complicate matters even more. So, um, and it's already quite a complicated case. Right, exactly. The, the other thing about the novel that I really enjoy is the feel of the authenticity. You have done your homework. I would expect no less from you, but you've done your homework, and you give this the smack of reality because you talk about Times Square, and you talk about what it was before, and that the New York Times has recently moved, and this is a new thing that they're calling this particular area, and you give us a flavor of what New York the city itself was like in the early 1900s. And I like that because that transports us back. It's a historical novel, but it's close enough in history that I think we sort of can look over our shoulder and almost feel like we can touch that reality. Right. I I know I have that sensation walking around New York. You know, there's a sense that it's just removed. You know, we we still see vestiges of it all around us. And, um, you know, even just for one concrete example, until a few years ago, there was a huge restaurant in Times Square that I think everyone who enjoyed the theater and went there patronized at least once, Mama Leone's. And in A Curtain Falls, I realized it got its start in 1906 the same time all these theaters were getting their start. So I incorporated that as as a dinner setting for Alistair, Isabella, and Zeal. And it had the most fascinating start. Um, Caruso, the great opera singer that everyone still knows, was great friends with Mama Leone herself. And he said, you know, your cooking is so good, you ought to start your own restaurant. And so she did over the objections of her husband. She started a restaurant right in their apartment in her living room. (laughs) I love it. I have never, in any account I've read, I haven't figured out whether the husband objected to this because he was sort of anti-feminist and didn't want his wife owning and running a restaurant, or if, quite naturally perhaps, he didn't want his living room filled with all these strangers every night. (laughs) That's a a good question. (laughs) She did really well, though, and within a couple of years, she'd moved out of the living room, and she had a full-scale restaurant. So I've been to Mama Leone's as well. Yeah. 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 I mean, a thousand years ago, but I've been there. And when I read that in the novel, again, it's that I could go there. I know where that was. I know where that location was. I really like that because I do think that that makes the novel easier for the reader to visualize and to identify with. I just like your work, Stephanie, because oh, you, thank you. you not only do you create interesting characters 
and a really interesting plot. And this whole idea around this theater impresario, Charles Froman, and having the murders occur on stage and, and be suicides, but they couldn't possibly be suicides. And Zeal is the one that realizes that. It, it's just a fascinating plot. Thank you for taking time to join us on Inside the Writer's Cafe. If our viewers, viewers, listen to me, you and I have talked on television before. If our listeners are interested in finding out more about you, more about your work, more about A Curtain Falls, let's give them a website. Sure. It's my name, www.stephaniepintoff.com, and it's spelled just a little differently, S-T-E-F-A-N-I-E-P-I-N-T-O-F-F. Well, thank you again for being our guest, and I'll look forward to the next Simon Zeal novel. And take care of yourself until then. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Cheryl. And we'd like to thank you, our listeners, for being with us today. And remember, until you join us next time, pick up a good book and read. 